All right, welcome to episode 26 of Talk Mental Health with Logan Noon. Today I have on my good friend David Bartley, who I actually met when I was just starting as a mental health public speaker. We had a great conversation. I really think you guys are going to enjoy it. Now, for my tip for the second tip for my men's mental health Movember themed month is men try opening up to other men about your mental health challenges. Uh, I think we all go through this kind of feelings and emotions, but men were typically supposed to be all stoic and just, you know, suck it up, just kind of that more masculine thing. But I really think that's actually going away. And I do think celebrities like DeMar DeRozan and Kevin Love are helping us, you know, really navigate this conversation. And I do think if you actually open up with men around you, you're going to have a really positive experience. And I really think today's podcast is going to be an excellent example of that for you. So hope you guys enjoy it. But how you doing, man? It's good to good to see you. Good to reconnect. Oh, brother, it is great to see you, man. And I love your podcast. You're just, and it reminds me of what I think we met. I mean, it was close to like six years ago. Yeah, it you might doing, maybe even five years ago. Maybe you were six. Doing, you would come from was it New Hampshire? Close, uh, Massachusetts. Massachusetts, and I remember you were selling. Do you work in insurance? Was it insurance? It was insurance. It was god-awful. Oh, it was terrible. And then I remember, though, that you talking about the dream was to become a psychiatrist. And then there had been, you were playing soccer, and I remember it all. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, I think we, so I guess this is exactly kind of how I wanted to start the podcast anyway, out with the story of how we kind of got connected. Because if it wasn't for our experiences and our desire to reduce stigma we never would have crossed paths so we were uh i was living out in roseville california at the time i had just got transferred from worcester mass i was working as an underwriter in insurance so i was uh sitting in a cubicle all day i was just playing around on excel it was i was so depressed i was happy outside of work because i was making you know a slow recovery from my bipolar disorder but those hours eight to five every day i just despised despise with an absolute uh just my entire body it was awful but so then we met at uh it was a mental health speakers bureau it was like placer county speakers bureau right was that the name of it yeah and i i am still a member in fact i just did a gig for them yesterday to 400 ninth graders at delaware high school oh wow how did that go oh you know what It, it was great i don't do that many high school gigs and so it's kind of like speaking to police officers uh, in the point being that they're very stoic. So okay. I had a whole theater full of kids. Actually, I did two talks back to back to two, like 200 and 200. Yeah. The only indication that I had that it was effective was they were perfectly silent. So for a group of 14 Did you see them on your their phones? No, no okay. phones. Yeah, no see, phones. I, then they were paying attention. Yeah. And the police officers, same thing. They came, I had several officers come up to me after that. And interestingly, because I've done a bunch of CIT trainings, which is crisis intervention trainings. Okay. Which, if you don't know, as a quick aside, it was started in 1984 in Memphis, specifically to train police officers when they come into contact with somebody like you or I in a, an acute phase. So I did. I think I've done 50 of them, but this is the first time where I've spoken to the same officers on consecutive days. So two different speeches, which is actually really cool. So anyway, long-winded, but yeah, still a member of Placer County Speakers Bureau where you and I met. Yeah. So yeah, that was in what, 2000? It must have, 
maybe 2013. You know, it's kind of weird. I can base, I could look it up even right quick. Um, and I kind of wanted to talk to you about like why we joined the Placer County Speakers Bureau. And for me, it was actually kind of a weird, um, exciting incident. I just looked it up real quick. It was the Sandy Hook shooting. Ooh, that's right. I remember you talking about that. Yeah. In your speeches, so right? that was that was December fourteenth, two thousand twelve. So I must have joined right at the start of twenty thirteen. And I think I came on. You were a little ahead of me. I want to say my first speech was like May of twenty thirteen. So I, yeah, you you definitely you were ahead of me by almost six months. I think mine was maybe then in about March or so. Yeah. Um, it wasn't much further because I remember I knew Will Taylor really well. Um, who was, uh, so for you listeners, Will Taylor, he's going to be another guest on the podcast too in the future. He, I met him at a bipolar depression support group out in Roseville and we just became really good friends. And he was telling me about how he had this speakers bureau and he really wanted me to join, really wanted me to join. And I kept thinking like, yeah, I'll join. But I always kept thinking like when I'm in a better place in life, you know, maybe, (sighs) (laughs) <laughs> Maybe when I lose more weight, because I was still very overweight at that point of my uh, recovery journey. My depression put like 80 pounds on my body, essentially. And um, I remember I just kept thinking, though, like, okay, maybe once I get a better job, you know, because I was just, I think I was like 23 years old. I was working an entry-level insurance job that I hated with all my heart. Right. And I just kept thinking, like, okay, once life gets a little bit better, then then I'll I'll do this. Maybe in like 5, 10 years. But then this Sandy Shook uh, Sandy Hook. God, I can barely even talk. Sorry, I just finished that neuro test. I'm operating on like four hours sleep right now, oh. just barely past that damn test. So the Sandy Hook shooting happened, and I grew up 40 minutes north-ish, 40 minutes to an hour north of Sandy Hook. And my right. mother was an, is, still is, and was at the time, an elementary art teacher. And so I remember just thinking like, dude... Obviously, in in my eyes, that guy had a severe mental illness, but that wasn't my experience with mental illness. Right. And I and that was really my inciting incident to get me. And I, I remember calling Will and I was like, Will, I want to get trained to be a mental health speaker. I want to be on your team. You know, how how can I help? So what yeah, was no, it, it, in fact, so just a quick. So I just saw Will like six weeks ago. Oh, cool. How's he doing? He's doing good. He's now working, um, is it working for a place called Peers, which is Placer Independent Resource Services, which is an amazing okay. organization. So I was, I sit on the mental health board for Placer County, which again, kind of blows my mind. Yeah. A lot of the meetings are at Kirby Hills and just on the other side of the wall is the psych hospital. But on the side that I am now on, it's the admin side. Okay. So I go back there, which is always kind of, I think life has a sense of humor but well okay well so so you got to remember though the so explain to the listeners why it's funny so in august uh august 31st of 2011 i was going to jump off the forest hill bridge so the forest hill bridge is the fourth tallest in the united states it's 500 feet further off the ground it's the opening scene from triple x where vin diesel jumps the corvette for you guys yeah it's amazing it's 500 feet further off the ground than the golden gate bridge so, wow. so I was there and then was saved and we can talk about the particulars more later if you like, but was then taken to an ER and then taking, taken to Kirby Hills, which is, I remember in the ambulance going from the emergency room to the psychiatric hospital and the, the guy, the EMT in the back saying, 
you're going to the puff. I'm like, what is the puff? (laughs) Well, puff is, and you probably know this, it is a standard acronym for any psychiatric facility, which is less, I believe, than either 14 or 16 beds. So it's a psychiatric health facility, hence the puff. So I was there for 15 days. It's housed in a, in a building or a group of buildings called Kirby Hills. So a lot of the mental health board meetings that I go to now are held at Kirby Hills, obviously not in the hospital, but on the, literally the other side of the wall where I was hospitalized because I was going to take my own life. And, it, and, and I'm sitting now as a member of this mental health board, but seven years ago, I was an inpatient in a psychiatric ward. So I look at how life can sometimes transform so radically as it has for you, my dear brother. Yeah. And to go back to that place in really my worst possible moment of my life. And then to see every month, typically I go back there for a meeting and how my life has progressed along. It's, it's extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess where I kind of want to start this story, I mean, I of course want to know why you decided to join the Mental Health Speakers Bureau and really kind of how we ended up crossing paths and becoming great friends and uh, and really respecting what each other is, are trying to do. But I guess let's just start this story from the beginning. So I guess, you, you know, you were, what led you up to jumping on that bridge or atten- thinking, becoming yeah. so close to jumping off that bridge? So that the in, in the speeches that I do now, I, I tell people that the genesis of my mental illness was reads like a cruel equation. So genetics plus trauma. So grandfather committed suicide when my dad was five. Father in turn suffered horrifically until his early death at 41 by cancer. But I certainly think being beaten down so mm. terribly over the course of his short life by mental illness, if nothing else, made him more susceptible. And my brothers who are older than I, I was only seven when my dad passed, tell me stories of him going to have ECT. And Logan, this was back in 1969 and 1970. And for him, as from my brother's recollection, it was really positive. It was one of those rare instances when ECT was so so new. So I inherited the gene, but speaking to a a future doctor, you know that just a genetic predisposition doesn't sentence you to the malady. But I had the trauma of losing my dad at seven and then the horror of being raped by a trusted community leader, a Boy Scout leader, when I was 11. Wow, I, I didn't know that aspect. Yeah, so it's just really terrible. Um, so yeah. those two things came together in unfortunately a classic pattern to create the seeds for depression and really when I was 11. And I, had, I ran across a stat not long ago where it's some high percentage of people like you and I who have had an issue with it, that it begins before you're 14 or by the time that you're 14 and something like 65 or 70%. So anyway, I fell into that group and over the course of the next 40 years, it was there without a doubt. And I had those days in which the level of acute self-hatred was so powerful that I I literally couldn't even look in the mirror. So I fall into the category of either a smiling depressive or a high functioning depressive. So I'm a good actor in the times when I have been most depressed, people have no idea. And so when I went to the psych hospital after being saved from jumping off the bridge, people were blown away Mm -hmm. because they didn't see me as depressed or suicidal. At the time I was married to an amazing woman 
And we were running a large nationally recognized end of life animal sanctuary called A Chance for Bliss. And the sanctuary was just down the hill from the bridge and it was home to as many as a hundred animals at any one time, 25 horses, 23 dogs, nine pot belly pigs, goats and sheep and ducks and geese and, and bunnies and birds. And it, we became literally famous over for throughout the country mm-hmm. for the creation of a forever home for animals deemed to be unadoptable. And so I didn't fit the image of somebody who was battling a mental illness or somebody who had been plagued by suicidal ideations. And as a result, people had no idea the degree to which I suffered. And at one point, 14 months prior to my attempt, we were the cover story in the life section of USA Today. And then just 14 months later, this spectacular fall from grace, my the acute nature of the mental illness having compelled me, as I say, the monster took me by the hand and led me to that dark spot on that tall, tall bridge. Yeah, and it really kind of reminds me of this this analogy or this phrase I always really say, and it really, I think, hits home in this day and age with social media and everything that's going on, like from the Facebook perspective or just from everyone else's perspective, looking at your life, like, man, like he must have it all. The wife, the really like meaningful, impactful job. And, you know, he's around animals all day. He's not stuck up in a damn cubicle, just pushing numbers and stupid bullshit. But, and I think like, because we're just so able to imagine what other people's perspective of are us, of us, excuse me, because of Facebook and all these other stupid things, it just can confound depression, I think, so much worse than maybe it did 200, 100 years ago. Absolutely. And I think that, of course, stigma, especially, you know, middle age, I mean, at 55, so I was 48 at the time. And I think if you look at that age group is so difficult because by that point, you've reached some level of notoriety in your family and your community if you're working in whatever job. And so if you've not discussed to that point how difficult your mental illness makes everyday life, it's almost impossible for you to all of a sudden raise your hand in middle age and say, hey, I, I, I'm struggling. So coupled with the fact that many people are great actors, so, and people from the outside say, wow, look at, like you say, look at his mm-hmm. life. I mean, my gosh, you guys were just on USA Today. I mean, you, you have the world by the tail. Yeah. So when they saw me, found out I was in the psych hospital, I mean, it literally blew people's minds. They're like, yeah. not this guy, anybody but him. I know. Yeah. So I guess what the first question that I, comes to my mind is, you know, that horrific event, you obviously had the genetic preposition, but then that trauma, which um, I'm really intrigued by just adverse childhood events and like how they pan out the rest of your life. I I might want to go into child psychiatry. I'm considering it. So I guess, though, after that horrific trauma, were you depressed consistently throughout the next 10, 20 years? Or was it on and off? And like, what did that look like? So great question. I mean, and and I think in the typical situation, given how how amazing our bodies are, the incident became a repressed memory. So I was 11. It didn't come up again. I can almost remember the day I was a sophomore in college. I was a resident assistant at this small school, St. Mary's College of Maryland down in Southern Maryland and had my own room. And I remember it first came up as I thought it was a dream. And like all rape, mine was particularly perverse. And I thought, I don't watch horror movies or, and I'm pretty careful about what kind of input I have. So over the course of whatever period of time, I realized it, it had happened. 
um, ultimately sometime later shared it with friends, never shared it or didn't share it with my parents until God, years later. Now looking back, I realized that yes, in fact, I had always had at a minimum a level of dysthymia, that low grade depression. Mm. But, and my technical diagnosis now is bipolar two. So it used oh, to be okay. a depressive disorder, but hooked How up. How did I a, not know this? Well, this, this is new. This just, just came, the revised diagnosis came up uh, three and a half years ago. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, I so just, I assumed you had major depressive disorder. I, I did not know this. No. And I, you probably know the stat better than I do, but what I remember is something, some like around 40% of people who are originally diagnosed with MDD are actually bipolar too. Um, yeah. And it's well, really- I just think like the way that my mental illness presented itself, like that pure, cause I'm, I'm bipolar disorder type one. And for the listeners, okay. type one is, is typically a more severe manic side than, right. and, and bipolar type two can also have the severe mania, but type two in my eyes is typically a, a less severe mania and also more depression, it seems like. So it does seem like it's, it's very difficult to, um, diagnose. Okay. Uh, so sweet. We'll, we'll be able to yeah. get into the whole medicine side of this too. I didn't know we were going to oh, get yeah, into no, that I, side of the story too. No. And I'll tell you, yeah, the meds of course are different now and, and I'll, I'll jump ahead and say my meds work beautifully. Uh, okay. Um, yeah. So I won't, I'm teasing. No, yeah. You. Yeah. Tease, tease the listeners. This is great. Good way. Good way to finish a, a neuro neuro <laughs> exam for me. You know, you're talking to me Friday afternoon it is uh, 2.14 in the morning. And so quickly, I mean, we'll go on with the story. I'm already so excited about this podcast. But for the listeners, I'm sorry if I sound a little slurred and maybe a little bit stupid today. <laughs> I had my first neuro test, which is they are testing us on all the different arteries of the brain and neurotransmitters uh, and then the gif- different uh, spinal just, just different tracks, like how your body would sense like a uh, sensation with your finger, how you would ins- sense heat and, you know, how your heart and all the other organs interact with the brain. It's incredibly interesting, but it's also incredibly hard. Oh, oh. my God. So I have been staying up for the past like eight days until about midnight, 1 a.m. every single night, wake up at about eight and just go all day. Cause that's just, I mean, for medical school, for me, I just barely pass. I, I, you know, I'm getting just about seventies into everything. And I, I literally could not be trying any harder. And the material though is absolutely fascinating. And we haven't really gotten into the whole behavioral health portion of it. So I don't really understand any of the behavioral health medicines, but funny enough, I sort of do some of them. And the pill that I'm on is called valproic acid, which Mm. actually was all over our test today. Essentially, if I'm going to put this in, not to be demeaning, regular people terms. No, it's okay. Thank (laughs) you for translating. Okay, so I take a pill called valproic acid, also known um, brand name more Depakote. It's typically an anti-seizure medication. And it's inhibiting this molecule that, or well, okay. It is essentially a medication that is keeping around an inhibitory molecule longer. So it's turning off systems in the body more than if the medication wasn't there kind of thing. Okay. So essentially how I 
understand it works as an anticonvulsant is it's turning off muscle spasms potentially and different synapses and crazy things that can go on just because it's keeping around this inhibitory molecule longer. So it also somehow, I don't fully understand, maybe I'll be able to answer this question fully in 10 years, has beneficial effects for bipolar disorder type 1, the mania side. So maybe mania is very similar to a crazy bunch of synapses going on in a seizure. And so, in so, this, go ahead. so in this, then, does the, does the Depakote act as a ceiling? In other words, so it, it caps potential manic episodes? Is, is Am I understanding that correct? Uh, that, I mean, in a loose sense, that is kind of my understanding. It's, you know, keeping around this neurotransmitter that's turning things off, to put it in simplest terms. Okay. No, I got it. That makes sense. And so, uh, full disclosure, listeners, OMS2 students, second year, I still don't know what the hell I'm talking about. And I haven't gotten to the behavioral health unit but it's it's really crazy to see now finally this is like why i went to medical school it's in my classes it's in my notes like i'm starting to slowly kind of understand this illness that you know we still seem to know not very much about so um sorry my i'll end my random rant there but uh so i this is this is a great way to really conclude the first neuro test of mine and so uh let's dive back into your story i'm sorry i forgot even no no no, brother that's okay um so at, at this point, have this amazing animal sanctuary, and then my life really comes apart as a result. I just can't fight this mental illness anymore. Go into a, a psych hospital. And, and what's interesting, and I've talked about this recently quite a bit, that, that my experience in the psych hospital was nothing but positive. I mean, really? I did a, um, somehow got invited to do a 90-minute interview yesterday on a company that is creating an app for emergency rooms. And so they interviewed me for 90 minutes on what was my experience in the emergency room. Okay. Um, and this app is going to be a tablet that they give to people with, with different things. So this was early on. But my, my point being that really my experience from the time of interaction with the first responder to the emergency room, to the ambulance ride from Sutter Roseville over to Kirby Hills, and then I was in Kirby Hills for 15 days, oh, wow. was really great. I mean, as, as unusual as that sounds, it was really a positive experience. Now, interestingly, when I got out of the psych ward, Logan, my life actually went from bad to worse. Okay. So we were, to a certain degree, we lived in a glass house because we had become so known and we were doing really great work. Mm-hmm. But herein lies, for the most part, where stigma is so powerful that people saw that the co-director had, was going to commit suicide and we lost most of our support. And so this, I would have got out in about so the middle. So now by support, does that mean employees or does that mean like people funding you? People funding because we were okay. a nonprofit. Okay, really, yeah. Deanna and I did most of the work. We had two other people that would help us. And with 100 animals, and we did no adoptions because we took animals that nobody wanted, either okay. very sick, very old, or end of life. So I came out of the psych hospital mid-September of 2011. By the end of that year, the sanctuary had been forced to close down due to lack of support, handed the keys to the repo man and watched my vehicle be driven away, lost home to foreclosure, bankruptcy, and my marriage ended. Wow. So it was the quintessential plague of locusts coming through and just wiping me out. And with some clothes, a borrowed vehicle, and, and one of my beloved Boston Terriers, I went to go live with my two brothers and sister-in-law, where as I speak right now, seven years later, I still live here now. And that's, so, and that's where exactly? Is that in Roseville? 
Rockland. So oh, okay. right, yeah, right around the corner. More yeah, or less yeah. the exact same place. Yeah. And it has been, this has been one of the elements of my self-care and tenants of my life that has helped me move, as I say, away from mental illness into the place of mental wellness, living with these three extraordinary people. Um, I went from one sanctuary to another sanctuary. Yeah. But I, you know, it's interesting because I thought about this the other day, and it might have been a response to an interview or a question that had I not had the positive experience I did with the quote unquote system, I don't think I would have been able to weather the storm that I did not know was going to come after my hospitalization. Because it, I mean, certainly, you know, I, until recently, I still even, and, and we can talk about if you want what I do for a practice of self-care, but until about four months ago, I was still plagued by suicidal ideations. Um, point being that they were really, really, really bad right after I got out of the psych hospital. And then okay. given the fact that everything fell apart, I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously. yeah, it's, it's wild to think that that suicide attempt was before all of that. I know. Yeah, <laughs> it like, is. And I, you know, it's interesting in all my speeches, I really, I don't talk about that part, not because it's not important, but I don't know if it serves what I consider to be my overall message that, yeah, it, it just, but, but for you and what we're doing here, I think it's essential because I think when we want to just kick stigma's ass, yeah. you first need to know how powerful the bastard is. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. So, I mean, I'm glad you had a really good experience with the psych ward. I, I am so glad I went and you know, that was really the start yeah. of my treatment I wouldn't say I had the best experience. Um, and really, I'll, I'll share one good thing, one bad thing. One thing in my life that I still do is yoga. Okay. Um, and the first place I did yoga was the psych ward. Did you really? Yeah. They did not offer that to me. <laughs> they, uh, I, remember, I remember there was a few interesting classes one of them was like a dance therapy or something, and you can just picture, man. I don't know, dude. It 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 was. It, I was not having a good time. I was just. I just remember. I I just kept thinking, like, how in the hell am I doing a dance therapy class in the psych ward right now? Like, what decisions did I make to lead up to this point? But then, but then, um, the yoga class was really cool and that was it's i actually funny enough the beginning of the last podcast i i doubt you had a chance to listen to it it just was released two days ago my first men's mental health tip of the day because this is november after all was yep. please give yoga a try and my first experience with yoga was that damn psych ward and that is you know outside of the medications outside of starting therapy um yoga was really one of the best lessons that i learned from the psych ward that's incredible. So, wow. I, I, I not, did not know that aspect of your story. Okay. And then the other, though, neg one, my biggest complaint of psych wards, and I understand the policy, but I, I still hate it, and I'm going to work on changing this. So one of the best ways that I take care of myself now mentally is getting outside, whether that's hiking, right. hiking, um, golfing, skiing are really kind of the big things for me, or just sports in general, just anything that's getting yourself outside, exercising, in nature, vitamin D, breathing fresh air. You know, I don't know what the puff was like, but where I was, it was a locked down facility. 
No, yeah, when we were too. But I, I do have a funny story when you're done. Yeah, I'm... and I've, I've actually been inside that puff because I ended up shadowing the psychiatrist that was there, um, Doctor. Ig- I can't say. Oh, Inagowitz. Yes, I was yes. gonna say. I was like, I know it's. I, yep. I, so really, I ended up shadowing yeah. her. But uh, so I know how that psych ward is, is set up, and it's a little bit better than the one I was. But the one I was at had like a sunroom. It was on the the top floor of the hospital. But it had a sunroom. And so like for 30 minutes every day, they brought you out into the sunroom as if, you know, you're like a little cupcake that's baking in an oven. <laughs> it just, ugh, dude, I'll be like, really? I'm like, can we just go on a walk? Like, let's go right. on a 30 minute walk. And they're like, well, no, sir. You know, this just given that this is a psych ward, you can't get let out. And I wasn't committed. I wasn't a danger to commit it, uh, hurting myself or anything. So I voluntarily entered. I actually technically could have left if I wanted to. But just like how it would have gone against medical advice would have been a whole thing. But and how they wanted us to be there, though, was locked in that facility. And I get it, you know, for safety reasons and in, in respect. But I, that was my biggest complaint because I was just like, let me go outside. That will help me mentally. And right. that was some something that was so basic and innate to me. But I was like, what? And so at least where you were, I know they have like that little enclosed space that is sort of outside, but just so the listeners can properly picture this, the fence is built a certain way so you can't climb up and bounce and leave. No, exactly. Exactly. It's like you do feel like in a sense to me, I thought like sort of um, in prison, in jail, you know, caged. And it's a horrible feeling. Yeah, because I mean that. So it was interesting. I did. I was involuntarily committed and was on the lock side for five days, and then yep. you literally walked across the hall into the. It was a, to a certain degree. It was a step down. It was still in the psych ward, but there yep. I could have left if I wanted to. So <laughs> every day, we there was a group of us, and we would we were led by one or two staff members, and we would walk probably about. I don't know, a half a mile from where Kirby Hills is, where the psych ward is down to like the 7-Eleven. Mm-hmm. We would walk in a single file line, like Holding we're on hands. a field trip, yeah. next parallel to this busy road. And I just like, please, God, do not have anybody I know see me walking down. Yeah. It was one of those things that I will never forget. But all that aside, we did get on the on the voluntary side. We did get out pretty much every day for about thirty minutes. And I okay. now looking back, I think it was very beneficial. Yeah. Well, it's nice to know there is still a lot of there's a lot of variety, and especially as a, as a soon to be. Well, okay, I shouldn't say soon to be. I'm still damp six years away, but from being a psychiatrist, um, you know, at least I I can have some flexibility and push the system one way or another. And so. I, though, had a very similar experience when I left the psych ward. I actually became much more depressed than I was prior to entering the psych ward. And I think really in that was it was the stigma because I I didn't know anybody else that had ever been to a psych ward. I didn't. I hadn't either. So no, then I, it's it was like I felt depressed, but I still like, you know, I'm a really social guy. I had friends. I had sort of people I could talk to. I never talked to really them really about what was going on. But once I got in that psych ward, I talked to nobody. And I just remember being so, so, so depressed. And it wasn't until California when I really was like, 
you know, I don't know anyone here anyway, so I might as well just start telling people. And if people aren't cool with it, then I'll just stop telling people. Like, I'm a new right. man. I was, you know, 22 out in uh, Sacramento. And Sacramento is such a lovely place. I eventually met my – I got married uh, two months ago. I saw that. Congratulations. No I saw big deal. Congratulations. Um, to a beautiful woman from Sacramento. So I, uh, I'm hoping to maybe move back to Sacramento um maybe go to uh i mean uc davis psychiatry would be a fantastic residency i don't know if anyone from that residency is listening or if anyone who's listening knows anyone there send this to them please because i'm begging you that would be such a fantastic opportunity to return to sacramento so what was your experience though you said after you left that kirby hills You know, your life's kind of, in a sense, sort of falling apart. You move in with, did you say your brother? Two, two brothers and a sister-in-law. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. And so how then did you go from, you know, thinking your life sucked and you were super depressed, obviously having some suicidal thoughts, like what did what did recovery sort of start to look like? And like, how did you sort of turn this around? I, so I made a friend in the psych ward. His name is Don. And Don and I, also another middle-aged guy, was going to kill himself. And we became very connected, um, both almost the exact same time in there. And then Don got out a little before me and found this men's depression support group. And I ended up being part of that group for six years until it ended just recently. And from that group really was the thing to put my life and and to a large degree saved me because out of that group, I had this incredible experience of being with a group of middle-aged men and speaking openly, kind of the exact opposite of your experience back after your, and certainly mine as well, but it was incredibly healing. And from that group, I met my current therapist who I've been working with now every week for five years. Oh, it's five years this month. I met my current psychiatrist who revised my diagnosis and and did a med change, which we can talk about. And that's where I met Will Taylor. Oh, cool. Yeah. And I would love to say that my intentions initially were as altruistic as yours, but there was a flyer that my good buddy, Jeff Cowan, who was, who had um, facilitated the depression support group for all the years that I've known Jeff, there was a flyer that Will had produced and said, you know, come tell your story and get paid. So my economics were horrific at that time. And, and I thought, well, okay, I'll, if anybody wants to I'll listen to my story. Try. Yeah. yeah. So I, again, I would love to say that I was out to save the world and I was really just looking at an opportunity and I like to tell stories and I like to talk obviously. Yeah. So there, there was some, but I had no idea. I mean, this is what I do full time now. I mean, that's, as a mental health speaker and writer, that this is all that I do. So if I look at how the whole thing started, it, I'm shocked. I would have never guessed it in a million years, Logan. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, and when I got to Sacramento, I remember really falling in love with the city because they had, uh, um, I went on meetup.com, my therapist told me. Right. And I, I went on bipolar, searched bipolar, and they had a group balanced, balanced support group, which was, it met like every Wednesday. And that was the first place I was able to meet people who actually had other mental illnesses. Right. And that was extremely healing for me as well. Yeah, just because I, I didn't feel like such a, a kook, a weirdo. 
you know, just like totally like I didn't feel all alone. And so that was really the big turn for me where I finally just started to, you know, I was developing some friends and people who I was living with who were very cool with me uh, being open about my bipolar disorder. I was starting to go to these groups. I've really started to exercise a lot more. And then, though, I mean, let me just take a drink real quick. I was also a young, I mean, I still am young in my eyes. I guess we're all, we need to view ourselves as young. Yeah, but I was, I was a super baby right now. Like right now I'm talking to you. Sorry, listeners, you can't see this. I have a gorgeous mustache for Movember. Glad we're talking about men's mental health. And I couldn't even grow a beard at that age of my life. Let's put it that way, okay? I was like 22. I was fresh out of college and I graduated with a degree in economics. And I just remember... I really liked the, I love studying economics actually much before I love studying medicine. And people always think economics is like the study of purely finances. It's really the study of decision making and what factors go into decisions. And I just knew that new markets had the best capability for someone and some company to be successful. And right. so I remember I, I majored in economics and, um, got a minor in environmental science because I wanted to go into like green business somehow. And I was doing some kind of green solar insurance, but it was still insurance. I still hated it. <laughs> but I just kept thinking about like, you know, this is how, you know, I'm going to be able to be successful, become uh, a wealthy individual who's going to be able to go skiing and golfing. And, you know, I, w I was at that age of my life. And I guess in some respect, we all still are materialistic, you know, um, sure. but much, much so before when I before I really became much more mental health aware and realizing more now about like being mindful and being more into experiences rather than things. But especially when I was very young, I was just really into that. But I remember just kind of thinking about mental health. And I remember Will, I met Will at one of those uh, support groups as well. And he's saying like, dude, we'll, we will pay you to start <laughs> talking about this. And I would be like, what? Like, cause I, I always wanted to, but then I just remember kept thinking like this industry of mental health this world of mental health is essentially an untapped market like people aren't serving these these individuals who clearly need services i clearly need services and i didn't get them until you know thankfully it wasn't too late but i still wish i seeked out psychiatric care much earlier than i did Amen. Um, you know yeah. and so i remember just kept thinking like it was still, you know, it was altruism. I, of course, wanted to help people, but I also view what I'm trying to do as like an opportunity just because I think that there are not high quality services for mental health care the same way. And they're they're higher, you know, for like cardiology or uh, people with diabetes and, you know, just a little bit better chronically managed illnesses. Um, you know, not everything could be obviously like cancer isn't managed fantastically, but right. I just remember I, I too though had kind of a, I shouldn't say, I guess it is sort of selfish, but you have to sort of be selfish. You have to put yourself first, like an opportunity. And that's what I, that was really the, what started my, my illness or my journey, excuse me, to medical school was joining that speakers bureau. No, and I remember, I remember, as I said, I remember very clearly being very drawn to you and you were very passionate about, you know, your want to be a psychiatrist. And I remember thinking like, God, how cool would that, that somebody with the lived experience, somebody who has lived and manages a mental illness, that they would actually be a practitioner. Yeah. Like, well, I remember all you guys would, would really believe in me. Um, oh yeah. Because no, I remember very clearly. It was, uh. 
you know, a lot of my colleagues and even my family, my family has been extremely supportive and helped me every single step along this way. And so has my friends. But I remember when I initially started telling people that I was, I just finished uh, undergrad and, you know, it wasn't a cheap school. I had a good amount of debt. I still do. And I remember being like, okay, uh, so I'm going to try to go to med school now. Oh, so you've you've taken the med school classes in in when you your undergrad, right? No, I'm gonna need to go back. <laughs> and people remember, I I remember people just looking at me with like a a dead face, being like, "What?" They're, and I remember the first question a lot of people asked me, they'd be like, "Uh, you're still taking your meds, right?" And I'd be like, "Yes, <laughs> like yes, like this is a good idea. Trust me, like I can do this." They're like, "We're just making sure. We're trying to make you know this seems a little manic because it was in a sense like this big wild idea of totally doing a 180 on your career, but especially in those little small communities of people with mental illness, they all were like, "Fuck yeah, go for that! Like that would be sick! Like how? Because I just remember thinking how much better of an experience would it would be." When I was in the psych ward, if I could sit across from someone who's prescribing me a medication or a therapy or just talking to me about mental illness, if they're like, okay, listen, I know you're scared shitless because you just had hallucinations in a manic episode and you were up for five days in a row. Guess what? It happened to me. I take meds now. It's okay. We can do this. Like, chill. Take a breath. We're going to be able to figure this out. It will be fine. And that was really, and I remember all you guys connected with that same dream of mine. And oh thank God. you because it, it, it got me here. No, and I remember when you posted on, because we had we hadn't said not stayed in touch based on life and everything else. But I remember very clearly when you posted that you got accepted into med school. It, it, it was like, of course, of course, Logan, Logan got accepted into med school. Well, man, it did not feel like it along that journey. I was... Uh, Actually, the podcast right before you, I talked about the pre-med journey versus medical school. And for me, it was actually worse as a pre-med. Really? Now, why, uh, why, why is that? Well, you know, if you talk to most admissions committees, most pre-med advisors, they're probably not going to tell you to write your application statement about being bipolar. Got it. You know, just the the whole stigma thing. The, this might not be a good idea, but, uh, you know, why draw attention to yourself if you don't have to? Why put a red flag on your application if you don't have to? Right. And I just remember thinking, like, but I can't tell my story about going to medical school unless I tell them what happened. I'm not right. going to say, like, oh, all of a sudden I just got fascinated with the brain. They'd be like, okay, like... You know, I, I just remember I kept thinking I have to tell this story. And I applied to a lot of schools and it was uh, very taxing because I didn't get in until the end. I got off off the wait list, but it wasn't until I got to medical school, I kind of realized how hard the journey was. Because, wow. man, there are people who took two or three attempts to get into medical school. It's just very, very competitive and it, it doesn't make sense to me why it should be so competitive because we have such a big doctor shortage in the country. Well, especially in psychiatry. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's like, why aren't we training more doctors? Like, I get it's more expensive, but I'm taking out a ton of loans. Like, can't I just pay for myself to go become a doctor? It just, I don't know. It's, it's very, it's a weird system. And once again, I hope we're both working towards just creating more doctors because it's just ridiculous. No, to me. exactly. 
Yes. And I kind of take this attitude of medical school is, yeah, you know, like I told the story earlier about I'm not sleeping a lot, super stressed about school and all this stuff. But I feel I can finally, like this dream of becoming a psychiatrist really feels like a reality. I, I feel like, you know, finally, like I'm here. And I and that's kind of has given me the confidence to be like, Psh, yeah, I'm gonna go make my own podcast and really just uh, shout to the whole world. And just so you just so you understand, you actually asked me prior to to hopping on here, do I need to dress up? And I was cracking up because that was a big reason why I wanted to make a switch away from YouTube to podcasting. Because right, right. YouTubing, I don't, I just, I don't feel comfortable in front of camera. I, don't I, I guess. At least, especially not a camera when it's just me and and myself in front of a computer or my iPhone. You know, at least this, we're not in the same room, but we're Skyping. And so we have that human connection. And when I'm in front of a an audience, you know, I have that human connection. So I'm very natural. But man, in front of my iPad, I just, I act weird and I act different. And like my wife rags on me for if you listeners want to uh, get a good laugh. Search Logan Noon on YouTube. And some of my beginning YouTube videos, I think, are very, very good. And some of them, I think, are very, very bad. So enjoy yourself. Um, but I think they had good elements, but whatever. It's still They were just poor production quality. But now, I like just the consistency of doing a podcast because I don't have to get dressed up. You know, I don't really have to be very presentable. And I can do what I just liking best and just talking with someone. No, I just as I, I've always loved your demeanor and your enthusiasm and, and your your humor. So it's just I, I and thank you for doing it and thank you for chronicling chronologically. Chron, chronologically, am I saying that right? Anyway, tracking and sharing with us yeah. what is it like to go from this thought, then a dream, then the actual reality of going through the difficulty of med school of all things, which is I can't even fathom it. Yeah, well, it's, uh, you know, and then I get to med school and I think I'm going to be the only one with a mental illness or mental health kind of challenge. Not like that, but I thought I thought there would be a lot more square bears. Let's put it that way. But um, there really isn't. You know, it's a lot of people have gone through mental health stressors or weird, crazy things in their life, which I'm sure they probably didn't talk about on their application like I did. Maybe some yeah. of them did, some of them did, but uh, I'm sure, but I'm meeting so many people who have just gone through these wild mental health challenges. And it's, I thought this show was going to be, it's obviously for people with mental illness and I want it to be, but it's really honing in on, especially like the burnout factor of psychiatrists or not psychiatrists, all physicians, medical students, because I'm meeting so many other medical students that are open to talking about these kind of things. And do you think, do you think, is it, and I'm sorry if there's a, if I, there's a leaf blower in the back. I'm hopefully you can't hear that. A uh, little bit, a little bit. Okay. Um, do you think any of the other ones were as authentic as you in terms of disclosing that on their, their med school app? Um... I think a few in particular. I think uh, I think though, what's unique about my experience in a sense is that my diagnosis just really changed the trajectory of my career. No, well said. But then there's also you know there's a colleague of mine who um, changed the trajectory of his career completely after uh, death in his family, mm. and it, it was it's it's really a collection of a lot of interesting people that have had 
significant mental health challenges in their own right. You know, just because it's easy, I feel like, for people to look at my story and your story of like, oh, you got committed to the psych ward. Uh, that that seems so much more challenging than what I went through. Like, I can't be depressed. I didn't go through the psych ward, you know. I right. didn't, right. or I wasn't raped or something. But it's still like, I just kind of say, like, it's all relative. Like, just because you haven't gone through these things doesn't mean you haven't been depressed. You haven't had suicidal ideations. Like, I think especially with people who have grown up in more... Um, in a sense, like affluent homes or like easy opportunities sometimes look around and they think like, I, I don't deserve to be depressed because I didn't go through as significant of a trauma as person X or person Y. But right. I think individuals like um, Kevin Love, you know, in the NBA yeah, exactly. and all these other uh, DeMar DeRosa, like talking about like these celebrities who really, you know, they're NBA players. Like when I was in third grade, that was my dream. I wanted to go play in the NBA. Like they seem to have it all, but they go through just like us, significant mental health challenges. Right. No, no you're exactly right. You're exactly well, here, right. Let me, uh, it's, let me grab a coat real quick. Damn, this damn cat bit at me. Let me just grab a coat. It's, it's cold in here. Hold on. Okay, buddy. Yeah. All right, I'm back. Okay, can you cool. hear me okay? I can hear you, brother. Um, so I guess what I kind of want to hear about now is, well, I guess let's just continue with the story and just so the listeners okay. can kind of best. So you, you know, you started off, um, you were you were kind of doing this whole speakers bureau thing like me, and just you were still though at the time working, wasn't it like mortgages or something? I love you. Great memory. Exactly. So yeah. I had. I had been in the mortgage business. I started in 92 and um, just went full-time speaking uh, at the beginning of this year. Although I, I, I think I've done, I think I counted up. I'm a little bit, I'm north of 250 talks now. Wow. So most of those had been part-time. So the, in the heyday of the mortgage, it funded the sanctuary. And then we became a okay. nonprofit and then the economy collapsed. And we had this huge influx of animals because people were losing their houses. And wow. So then my life comes apart, go to live with my, my family. And then after a while, probably after about six months, I went, I went back full-time into the mortgage business because it had been more or less part-time during the economic collapse. Yeah. Met Will started to speak little by little. And then over the next five years, you know, I think my first year I probably gave, I don't know, five or 10 talks and then yep. it doubled to 20 and then to 30 and then 60. I think last year I did close to 70 and then created this whole curriculum and talks and everything else. And then it occurred to me and I, I look at, I don't know when the idea. And so I look at it as more of a divine thing that in my own words, I take mental health and I wrap it in an animal tail. Yeah. So some at one point there was this idea that i could use stories of all these extraordinary animals that deanna and i were blessed to care for and take this daunting subject of mental illness and mental health and make it more approachable and memorable if i put it in an animal story so that's oh, okay. now become my distinguishing aspect about my take on on mental health and if and i think is, about are it, you I, making that into like a book or a video series or is it does it have to be a talk by you like how does that work 
No, so I mean, right now it's it's the signature part of the talks that I do, but I'm actually in a process. I've, I'm writing three books. One, so I, I write pretty regularly in an. I'm more of an essayist as opposed to okay. a, a novelist. Book. So yeah, I just put together a first edition of a collection of essays into a book called My Troubled Mind Now Calm, and then I have a children's book that. A, actually downloaded into my mind during an EMDR session with my therapist called oh, wow. the blue elephant, which is basically my story in, is that already out? No, not yet. But oh, it, okay. It, hey, guess it, what? My what? mother and I are working on a children's book too. Nice. Yeah. Well, good. I can't wait to yeah. read it. Yeah. So, uh, that's awesome. And then the book that, that chronicles most of the sanctuary stories that I use in my talks is called They Pooped, We Scooped, Unexpected Wisdom Picked Up in an Animal Sanctuary. Okay. So those are the three books that I'm working on. And I created uh, some workshops that go in tandem with the, the talks. Um, I was blessed to, my number one bucket list item was to do a TED Talk and I gave a TED talk a month ago. And that was, yeah. So the listeners, I guess, because he didn't find that, because I remember I saw that. Um, it was wonderful. And I'd Thank like to watch you. it again, because I remember I watched it in one of these late nights of studying. So I didn't really have a chance to fully uh, divulge it. But I'll have to, I can link it easily when we post this podcast. So oh, where was you. that exactly? Los Gatos. Okay. Okay, so, cool. The, all the, the, the TEDx talks, they all have a theme. And yeah. ours was D.A.R.E. And it was okay. just as a, I'll digress for just a second to go on a tangent. It was an amazing experience in terms of being vetted and the rehearsals and everything else. And then the, 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 the class of speakers that somehow I got included with. So we had the executive director of the California Native Plant Association who had discovered this extinct plant in like a median strip in San Francisco. Um, we had the chief research officer for SurveyMonkey CEO of a medical corporation, a dance instructor from Santa Clara, one, a woman named Kathy, who is one of the final 100 to go to Mars. Wow. Um, this amazing transgender. Um, and then, so I, so for whatever reason, I was picked the last to go that yeah. night. Ten. <laughs> the gal Wait, you were the keynote speaker? You were the last one? Well, I don't know if they call it. We were all keynotes. In the yeah, sense. whatever, David. You were the damn so, keynote speaker. Claim it. That so, that counts. That counts. No, I, keynote it, it speaker, David Bartley, D what, TEDx Los, they, Los Gatos. And they put out the list. And I, but, so the email came out and it said, okay, here's the list. And I'm like, please, God, do not have me go first. <laughs> and then it was yeah. last. I'm like, wow. So it's funny, Logan, the woman before me is, is a PhD candidate candidate from of all places Cornell and her talk was how to use algorithms to increase social inclusion so then here I come up telling a story about a horse <laughs> <laughs> but it's a great story I, I think because my platform is connection creates hope and hope saves lives and the, the final story it's my favorite to tell I told it to the 14 year olds yesterday so it, it's a fun story that that really emphasizes it's this amazing illustration of the power of connection in what happened to this one horse named Odie. And that's the one on the TEDx one. Cause then I must've watched something different. Cause I have not seen this one that you're describing. Yeah. So the, the TEDx talk is how connection saved my life. 
so and, the, and, the, and that's the horse story that you're referring to. Yeah. So and it's, oh, okay. I did not see this then. I must have clicked on something different then. I, when I, I did watch it on talk. my website, which my niece has done. Brooke yeah, Brown, it looks great. Yeah. She's amazing. David so DavidBartley.com, right for the listeners. David, Wood, David Woods Bartley. Oh, David David Bartley was taken. You couldn't you couldn't get that on lockdown. Yeah, I don't. You know what? I don't know. I think I just I love my name. Not yeah. I just because my middle name is my great grandmother's maiden name. So oh okay. We took that. My niece has done an amazing job. But if you Google my name, or if you actually Google how connection saved my life, it comes right up. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah, All right. Then I'll, I'll have to watch this because I have not seen then this talk. I saw something else that, that, uh, you've done. So you've really transitioned between, you know, you're still working as a mortgage person. Were you selling mortgages or underwriting? I don't even just, I was a loan officer. So I guess they sell. Yeah. Okay. Just, it sounds so incredibly fun. I imagine just like my insurance career. (laughs) Um, You're exactly right. Yeah. Now that said, I did work for like you for an amazing company. And especially in the last five years, my boss was amazing because every Tuesday was therapy day and I had to leave early. I was doing these talks and she would let me cut out. Oh, wow. Okay. She's a great lady. We're still very, very close. It just got like I've, in January of this year, I said, you know what? I'm going to have to take a leap of faith and somehow hope I can make enough money to survive. Yeah. Right now, right now I'm living on savings. My hope is the TED talk will have me be more well-known. But the and company, the podcast on talk mental health with Logan Noon. Absolutely. Not, not as big of a platform as uh, TEDx. Not yet, David Bartley. There one day, go, one day. I'm I'm a dreamer. But actually, before we keep going with your story, so I remember that is still uh, a goal of mine. I would love to be on a TEDx talk. And oh, dude, you'd be amazing. I remember one of my favorite TEDx talks ever, and I don't even know who it is, but I'll describe it. Maybe you know. And I remember it was talking about like, how do you create a movement? And it was talking, everyone thinks, um, you know, all these great leaders like Martin Luther King and I mean, anyone else, any other community, any other th- person that helps kind of initiate a movement, because that's, I think, what we're both trying to do with exactly. this whole mental health movement. It, his whole speech, and God, I got to, I don't know who it is and I don't want to look it up, but I'll describe it. His whole point was about how it's actually it's not that first person that's the most significant in wow. a movement. It's the second person. Right. Once a second person joins the movement, it everyone else will then feel more comfortable doing it. Because that first person is kind of like a weirdo outlier, but then, oh, that second person's going. And what he shows is, I remember, someone dancing at a concert or something. And okay. I don't know if it's like outside lands or just one of these big concerts, or maybe it's just in a park or something. One person's kind of just boop, just dancing around and just going for a minute just just getting it all by him i think it was a him himself then one other person joins and he talks about okay now you see in this community one other person joins and everyone's like whoa now two people are dancing and then people now all start to get into it and so that was i remember the big igniting thing like well Maybe I'll just have to be that first kind of weird person. But if I disclose my story, it's going to make it only easier. Because I remember I just kept thinking about, I would like to have little ninos one day, little babies. You know, I did get married. I would like to make use of this. And like you touched on genetically, they are more likely to go through something. Who knows? Who knows what it is, but something. Um, And I just want them to be able to grow up in an easier environment. You know, better and where they feel more inclined to actually get care when they need it. 
No, I know. And it's still, you know, I, I've been blessed. I, I've spoken all across the spectrum. I do a lot of stuff in churches. Uh, I, my theology is about radical inclusivity. So I've talked in synagogues, uh, evangelical, new thought, Protestant, uh, a lot of police, a lot of schools, a lot of businesses. Mm -hmm. The point being, one, of course, the malady impacts everybody. It, it doesn't care about demographics or anything else. But also where there is still hesitancy for people to talk about it. Um, yeah. And how that, my belief is the monster wants to, is like a jealous lover. It wants to sequester us away from everybody else. And it is in that hell of isolation that the malady in, in all its manifestations thrive. But mental illness has no defense against connection. You know, like mm -hmm. you and I, two great friends, when we're connected, fuck mental illness. It can't yeah. penetrate. We can't penetrate the cocoon of connection that we're in right now. So it just whatever, and I know you and I, and along with our other brothers and sisters who are out there doing it, we will win the war. I, I, I know we will. Mm -hmm. um, but we got to keep moving. We got to keep doing what we're doing and telling our individual stories. And then to have somebody like you as a psychiatrist, which is just going to be unfreaking believable well yeah um, well thank you yeah oh and again i'm not surprised you know it's like yeah of course of course logan's gonna be a psychiatrist well yeah it's uh it's been a wild wild journey so now you have really you're full in you're trying to basically yep. i mean i don't even know exactly what the word would be a mental health advocate full-time writer speaker you're kind of yep. going all over what else i guess is in uh, your future. What are you? What are you trying to tackle down besides even just speaking? So speaking and writing, um, those two, and I want to take the courses that I do now and workshops. Typically, like in a church, I, I'll I'll preach a sermon. I use preaching. I'm not a minister, but I use it as a verb. Okay. So I'll preach a sermon and then I'll give a workshop. So okay. my my base speech is sometimes what hurts the most can't be seen, but sometimes what helps the most is easy to do, and it just it reminds people. I answer three what. What happened? What caused my mental illness? What have I learned? And then what can we do? And it's teaching people how to create connection. The, the impact of remembering somebody's name when they have no expectation that you would. The power of using curiosity as a path to understanding because we confront behavior which makes no sense, but there's always a story behind it. Mm -hmm. And then the power of a simple handwritten note. And the most amazing note I've ever received, and I talk about it in every speech, at the end of the note, this came from a young woman who is like a daughter to me, who I was in a depressive episode, she didn't know what to do, and by her own words said, I thought I would just reach out to let you know, I love you, your diagnosis is not your identity, you don't have to fight this battle alone, because in her words, we are a team, and we can do this, and I'm ready to kick some depression ass. And then the final line, Logan, is with seven words, depression can't have you because you are ours. That's awesome. And, so and who did that my, exactly come from again? Was So my former beloved, an amazing woman, I was in okay. a relationship for five years, her middle daughter is Natalie. Okay. And the funny story about Natalie is she was the first of the three daughters of Carrie's daughters that I met. And she introduced me. At, she says, hi, I'm Natalie. I'm mom's best option. <laughs> so she became, I still call her Bo. Yeah. As best option. And the note is signed Bo. So yeah. I, I tell people that, you know, we don't have to be a med student. We don't have to be a speaker. We are all capable and qualified of making what can be a life-saving difference because we can all create connection. Yeah. It's about connection. 
you know what? And so we can go around healing people and providing them with needed relief in the midst of their battle. And it's that simple. So, and I tell like yesterday with the kids, I told a story about a goose, a dog and a horse. And people just like these stories because they, they, they get it. It's just, it's an illustration and it kind of diffuses the intensity around the subject. Yeah. Because who, does, who doesn't like a story about an animal? No, that's, that's, I gotta, I guess, you know, I've seen, I, the last time I really truly heard your story must've been five years ago. And the way that you tell it must be just so different now, especially oh. cause you, yeah, I never remember you, you know, incorporating no. these themes and, um, I don't, I don't even know how I've really changed my story. I think I've just gotten more comfortable telling it. Well, and you, have, you have a really great way about you in a lot of different ways, not to, but when you like on the podcast, you're very self-effacing and you're funny as hell. And so you just, you mix all that in, in a way that again, it diffuses the intensity around the subject and you're so freaking authentic that it just the whole package works really, really well. well so I, again, I can imagine you, you being the psych the psychiatrist and I'm in a psych ward and you come up and, and say, Hey, you know what? I get how you feel. Yeah. It's gonna be okay. And and I've walked a similar path. Be like, shit, I could leave the psych ward right at that moment. No, like, okay, I'm gonna be all right. To have well, that kind of interaction with the clinician. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm really excited kind of about my future career, but I kind of want to um, take a similar path kind of that you're taking. I definitely want to continue public speaking, oh, but, but really my, my kind of thoughts, and I'd love to kind of get what you think of this sort of plan. You know, I, I, I think you had maybe a little bit more positive, positive of an experience in the psych ward than I did. And so my goal essentially is to one, improve the psych ward. But I kind of want to avoid the psych ward, avoid the catastrophe, like try to catch these illnesses earlier. And, you know, I think one of the easier ways, especially like I would like to work with kind of the population where it sounded like you started to have your trauma. um, And when I started to have my mental illness is like high school kids and maybe college kids. And I I see these especially the younger generation, like they're on their phones so damn much. I would like to be a telepsychiatrist, which very similar to us. Like we can still have a human connection, but it can be in, in, you know, set miles away from each other. And you can be in your private space, your room. And just so the access to care is a lot easier. Well, exactly. Because I think if you have no excuse to miss an appointment when I can just, Hey, FaceTime you, you know, Hey, Hey, how's going? Tell me what's up. No, no BS. I don't care if your car's broken down on the side of the road, you right. know, let's connect. And I think that's one of the ways, I mean, you talked about this reality a little while ago that there is such an incredible acute shortage of psychiatrists. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if the same is with social workers and LCSWs and, and psychologists, but access to therapy, which I think is essential. Um, medication plays, as you and I know, plays a huge part, but I'm, one of the platforms I talk about is whole person care, mm-hmm. that optimally a medication is gonna quiet the symptoms. It's a difference between an antibiotic and an Advil. So, but you gotta have those other things. There has to be the yoga and the meditation, and the yeah. diet and the sleep and the connect, all those different things. And one of the things, and, and 
you know, I'll give a speech and people come up and say, hey, my son needs help. I'm like, okay. And I share with them what I do. And, and unfortunately, I get a text or an email or a call later saying, I can't get in to see a psychiatrist for a month or two or three. Well, um, that was, uh, that's how they convinced me to go to the psych ward. As mm-hmm. weird as it sounds. I remember I had this mobile crisis mental health unit or something. I always, in my speech, I always refer to them as the mental health Avengers, just because I think it's funny. (laughs) And I still don't know. I still like, I, I guess I, I don't even know what organization they were from. I don't, I don't know, but they were like, okay, you have three choices. You can ignore your symptoms right now. Your kind of auditory hallucinations. The fact that you've been up like six days in a row now, and you can ignore all this. You can accept that. But, you know, clearly this is an acute acute state. You need a psychiatrist. You need some professional help. But if we need to make an appointment with you, we can't get one for probably about anywhere from uh, four weeks to six weeks. We can put you on a cancellation, but there's just no guarantee. And or you can go into the psych ward and you'll get seen by a psychiatrist tomorrow. And so that was kind of how I was just like, oh, like, I guess, like, I guess we're going to the psych ward. And that was kind of how how I took the my first step into that door um so i mean i agree with you man and so now i guess i want to get there's a few topics um i kind of want to grab you on so let's stick still with your story and then i guess we'll end more with like kind of general questions i have so i mean and this is gonna be totally unknown because i didn't even know this how did you make the transition from being diagnosed major depressive disorder to a bipolar disorder diagnosis. You know what? And again, I'm, you know, I'm very blessed for, for the people, for a lot of reasons, the primary of these extraordinary people have come into my life. So that was actually when I was, I had been on, um, I had taken Zoloft prior to going into the psych ward, but it had been diagnosed some years before, but it, um, it really didn't do anything. So when I went into the psych ward, they increased it to the max therapeutic dose, which I think is 200 milligrams. Uh, I don't know. I'm only second year. We always yell, we're not tested on dosage yet. Okay, good. It's type of drugs that we yell, hey, no dosages, no dosages, chill out, second years. So whatever it was, and it did nothing. And then, so life falls apart and then things had gotten a little bit better, but then I went into an even worse stage. So I have a great general practitioner. I see him at the gym the five days a week that I go is a wonderful man, Dr. Roy Harris. Okay. So, and he's really passionate and well-trained on mental health. He does, you probably are aware of the Brex depression index. You know that? A little, so it's, a little bit. Yeah. So another, it's, I think it's 20 questions and you, zero is uh, no indication of whatever the question is. And it goes to a four. So I was scoring at like a 40, which is really bad. Okay. So anyway, I go in, he's like, wow. So he was the one to actually think that, well, first he, no, first what he did is he changed me to a new antidepressant. Um, okay. It's a newer drug called Trintelix, T-R-I-N-T-E-L-L-I-X. And I seemed to get, that was helpful. So he got me off of Zoloft, got me, I would assume this is one of the newer drugs. But then I, then I went back down again and he said, you know, I actually think you're bipolar too, which of course I had no idea what that was. Yeah. So he said, I think you need. Sorry. I just wanted to close that door. He said, sorry, I think you need what? So he says, I think you need to see a psychiatrist. 
divinely in terms of serendipity, one of my dear friends in the support group that I talked about had just started seeing a guy. So I think you and I have had the same experience. Like, I'm not going to get an appointment forever. Yeah. Call him. His name is Dr. Francis Capobianco. Just saw him last week. He and I have been working together for three and a half years. Okay. Called him on a Wednesday. He called me back the same day. Oh, wow. Himself, which I'm like, okay. And then he said, yeah, no, I, I could take you as a new patient. Could you come in on Saturday for 90 minutes? I'm like, wow. what? Shut up. Yeah. So first meeting, and I still have the piece of paper. He, he taught, you know, here's my story and blah, blah, blah. And he says, you're bipolar too. I had not told him what Dr. Harris had thought. Okay. So he drew me this great diagram. And if you want, I'll take a picture and email it to you. Yeah, please it, do. It gives this distinction between bipolar one and bipolar two. That'd be two. a great thing to put up on uh, my Instagram yeah. in connection to this podcast. Yeah. I have it's I have the same piece of paper he gave me three and a half years ago. So the difference, of course, you know, uh, bipolar two, you're in a constant or your typical average state is dystymia. You're cruising along, trap door opens, you can go down to this horrific, hellacious place of depression. And then you work your way back up. And every once in a blessed while, you pop above the normal line into a state of hypomania, mm -hmm. which is not the mania that you experience, but hypomania is just having like a really great day. You're productive, yeah. you're connected, you feel like it's going to be all right. So I call it the baby in my speeches, the baby mania. Oh, it I is do, I do a speech actually because I I now have sort of developed one new speech, and it's been really interesting because I'm I'm so used to giving speeches normally to more generalized population, just like yeah. a good mix of everybody. But now I'm starting to speak only in front of medical students, and so uh, I get a little bit more into the actual the medicine side of it and like what pills I was on and stuff. And that's one thing I, I talk about how like hypomania is different than mania. It is baby mania, and I'm I'm yeah. gonna use that. I was saying, hey, my, my good buddy, the soon-to-be Dr. Logan, Dr. Logan Noon is, uh, calls it baby mania, and I like that. Yeah, yeah. So he said, well, let's keep the Trintelex, and then he talked about anticonvulsant. He put me on Lamictal, which has been around yep. for – so in fact, interesting, I have a niece who has dealt with epilepsy for most of her life. She takes Lamictal. Well, yeah. So both on the same drug. So Lamictal is a mood stabilizer. Mm -hmm. So he, and again, I'll show you when I send this, this picture to you, he says, you know, the, my treatment plan is to move my normal line up closer to the other quote unquote normal line. And the lamictal is like a net to potentially stop how far I drop. Mm -hmm. Now things at this point after this, I, one thing I'll give myself credit for is ridiculously consistent in self-care. So sleep, diet, exercise, meds. I've never missed a counseling appointment. I've never missed- wow psychiatry appointment i hit support groups and my own spiritual practice i mean purposeful work so i get this whole program and as mentioned I, I alluded to before like four months ago logan all of a sudden suicidal ideation stopped hmm. they don't exist and i'm like so i actually wrote an essay called i've stopped thinking about killing myself and i don't know exactly why what i've come up my explanation now is and i'm speaking to a future doctor that of course, it's medically known that every seven years, all the cells in our body changes over. Mm -hmm. And I, I, so what I've made up is with that, plus the consistency of taking care of myself, that there's been this beautiful confluence where my mind and the development of maybe of new neural pathways and this other stuff that I just, I don't have them anymore. Um, which is just, as you know, the absence of that is yeah. 
can't even describe it. Yeah. So the meds work like I have no side effects. I mean, I, I'll take them for the rest of my life. I don't care. Well, so one, I've actually had fairly good experience with the current medication I was on. The first medication I was on was Abilify and I got tremors. Ooh. And that was terrible. Uh, I did. I was on Lamictal for a little bit. I did like that, and I've had very little side effects as well, too. Being on the Depakote for this long, I still have to get my liver tested. And you know, one common one with Depakote is weight gain, and I kind of use that as like a crutch. Like I would gain weight, and I would just blame it on that at the beginning. But then I was able to lose a bunch of weight while on the medication. That's um, huge. Yeah, so that's really been really been kind of a positive experience for me. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a big proponent of meds, and I think. But what I tell people is, that in an effort to try to raise awareness and education, is like you, this. This can't be the only thing that you do. Exactly. If you yeah. want to be well, you know. And again, I'm pro meds, but you got to do these other curative things, these other operative practices, these habits, the yogas, the other things to truly, I think. Maybe it just it creates, it takes advantage of neuroplasticity and creates new things, this whole package together to get you to a point of wellness. Yeah. Um, but not having invasive, even after five, even five, six years, well, seven years since the you know, August 31st and, and doing a very consistent practice of self-care, I was still thinking about killing myself on a regular basis. Wow. And then that's kind of was like the last tenant to the, the last bastion. And I wrote in my essay, I said, you know what? I think those thoughts just got tired that they knew I wasn't going to quit. I was just going to keep on keeping on and they got bored and they just went away. Kind That's of a silly, fantastic. Metaphor, silly metaphor, but, um, and then even if they come back and they may, I now have an experience that they're finite. Yeah. Like I know they won't last forever. And that, so that gives me a little confidence, maybe more than a little like, okay, you know what? Ultimately, I can outlast you. I yeah. can't. I'm not going to stop doing what I know helps. I'm not. One outlook that's really helped me is, and I've said this a lot on the podcast, but I remember it was a it was like a pivotal day in with my therapist, like the one I guess everyone's looking for. You know, the point one 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 or zero 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 one percent of like that one thing that someone says to you that just sticks with you kind of forever. Right. I was complaining to him one day about I was like my anxiety. When is this going to go away? And he was like, it's probably never going to go away completely. He's like, you're probably always going to have an element of anxiety, an element of insomnia, and probably an element of suicidal ideation. So what I even say to everybody and what I say to you, kind of, that's amazing that you haven't had, you know, these type of thoughts in a while. But I also like to ha say, have the expectation that it's not going to last forever. No, exactly. And, yeah. And, and just like... And now having that expectations of just almost understanding an illness better and what the nature of this illness is, is when I get anxious again, when I get uh, like an insomniac again, and if I ever do have a suicidal ideation again, which I haven't in an extremely long time, I actually can't even remember the last time, but it's just an element of this illness, whatever, you know, it's right. just, I can, I, um, I'll move on. If it becomes a problem, I will, I know how to seek out care now. I know how to go to a therapist. I know when I need to call my doctor and say, okay, well, we might have to make an adjustment, <laughs> you know, right. like, I don't know what's going on, but this is not normal, um, kind of thing. Whereas yeah, exactly. before I didn't have that. No, and I appreciate that. And I appreciate the reminder to, to not, because uh, I think one of the things I, I loved, I don't know who said it, I would give him credit that 
the definition of an upset is an unfulfilled expectation. So I want to be able to manage my expectations as much as I can. And one of those would be like, I don't think it would be reasonable for me to expect that I would never have those thoughts again. Because yeah. that would just, I think, exacerbate when the thoughts come back. Exactly. Like, okay, you came back. I got you. You're not forever. You know, yeah. and I still am in therapy and psychiatry. I mean, I'm, I, I'll stay in counseling. I have no intention to stop because I have such great benefit. Well, and so I'm, one one question, though, that I have, and, I've, and I, of course, don't understand the complete science around this, but my understanding is when someone who has bipolar disorder is given an, an antidepressant drug, it can and typically does trigger a manic episode. Did you experience that? No. I mean, I've been hypomanic, and I still get okay. hypomanic, but I've never had the traditional mania like you have endured and like okay. other people that I know well. I mean, I've never stayed up for days and thought that I was Jesus Christ and mm -hmm. had, the, you know, sex. All these different yeah. things. Yeah, you know, all the stuff. There's, there's a mnemonic yeah. that I should have memorized right now to memorize all the different <laughs> symptoms. Uh, but my board test is not until June, so I don't need to okay, have yeah. that memorized yet. But I guess this is my career. I should probably learn it. That's so okay. now kind of transitioning, though, this conversation more into because I, I think you know this and you because I, I have a mustache, a Movember sort of theme. Indeed. Um, and so you are now my second Movember guest. Thanks again for coming on. Uh, oh, brother, I couldn't wait. I just this so has been a blast. You'll have to come on a whole bu whole bunch now because, um, you know, it seems like we're taking very similar paths. And uh, I think you should honestly make a podcast too. You okay. know, especially for the things you're trying to do. I feel like it's only a means of helping getting your name out there, your speaking abilities out there. And, um, you know, I, I kind of want to do some of the things you're doing too and just get out there speaking. Oh, but please do, because you're just, you're so great. I, and I think, especially, you know, to be a med student yeah. and not just talk to med students, but to talk to, I mean, I think that's a, I'm going to go on marketing slant here, but that's like this cool branding. No, yeah. Either. I don't know any med students out there who are lived experience who are doing speaking. Well, I want to really now focus, um, kind of like, like you just did the other day, high school kids. And yeah. my wife and I have decided, and it's not official yet, but part of my med school training is I do two years here in Yakima, and then I go somewhere for rotations. And okay. we put in to stay here. I don't know if it's actually official yet. I haven't gotten the paperwork from my school, but it's it's looking like it because I'm married and she's working full time, um, that we're going to be staying here. And there's a, it's a Yakima, I think it's like... 100,000, something like that. So there's a few high schools here. And so right. I would love to start speaking at the high schools. Oh, I and think. It would, I think it would just be so fun. And it's it's that's the kind of population that I want to work with anyway. Well, and if you think, and I think the stats are accurate, that if you look at just suicide, that 15 to 24, it's the second leading cause of death. Oh, I know. It's, it's really scary. But you know the other part, you probably know this, that it is our older citizens, I think it's 64 and older, that have the, I don't know what the word is. So in the younger group, let's just hypothetically say it's for every 200 attempts, there's one death by suicide. Yeah. On the older group, it's one in four. Oh, wow. It's super, and we're not talking about that group at all. Interesting. We're not talking about grandma and grandpa committing suicide. Yeah. Totally ignored that group, which is terrible. 
Well, then I'll have to, uh, I want to have you back on then again in a future episode, maybe where we specifically talk about, because I'm going to do a talk with uh, two of my classmates, two of my really good friends about physician-assisted suicide. Wow, okay. And and like how that sort of plays into that kind of thing, Um, and how like you know, maybe a portion of that is mental illness, but maybe a portion of that is maybe even mental saneness. And someone doesn't want to have to take 10 pills every single day to keep themselves alive kind of thing. And just like a, the, a conversation kind of around that. And just, I would love to kind of talk to you, have, have you back on again in the future and really dive into that one. Well, and I, and I would be honored to, and I'll, I'll just throw this out that so in the 20 years I was involved in animal care and rescue, I was there were I had 90 passings, nine zero. Wow. And there was some percentage of those, of course, were euthanasia. And I, I think our barometer was always quality of life. Yeah. We weren't just prolonging life. And I, I don't mean I'm not saying that from a judgment standpoint, mm-hmm. but I, I would love to dialogue with you about that because I certainly have some very based on my own experience. Through the, through the death process of a sentient being and the contrast of them living well versus struggling and suffering, I have some feelings about that. Yeah, and it's it's just a weird topic for me that I need to get more knowledgeable about because I just, I never envisioned, you know, on this journey towards becoming a psychiatrist that that would be a portion of my career. And I don't believe it's legal in California, but it is in Oregon. And right. I think it is in Washington. I think I got I got to double check this before I spew out my voice to the Internet. But I will, at least for those two episodes, I'll become more of an expert. Um, but it is uh, it's just something I didn't really think I I would be having to doing where like is suicide, which we always assume is always a negative thing. And I think in most most cases it is. Um, right. Is it ever? essentially appropriate acceptable for someone to do well the other thing i'll throw out because just the the thought because i've been doing a bunch of work in this is the whole aspect of grief and how grief is such an influential factor it could even be an igniting point from a traumatic standpoint yeah Um, i actually lead so i do i co-facilitate eight groups per month six six of those eight sessions so there's and there's one two three there's four groups Two are mental health support groups with specifically within a spiritual community, one uh, Jewish community and one Presbyterian community, and then two grief groups that are both in United Methodist communities. Because within the theological paradigm, a lot of times mental illness and grief and things, no one wants to talk about them. Mm-hmm. Point being, if we look at the older population, in one group, Logan, we have five members. In this group, we meet every week. They each lost mates of 50 plus years. Wow. So I think if it were not for the group, and this of course has nothing to do with me, the connection that that group provides has literally saved their lives. So it has kept them where grief would overwhelm them, put them into a place of mental illness or acute loneliness, which could potentially drive them to suicide. And I've looked, especially at these five people over the last year, how they still you know, suffer from the sense where grief is still impacting them. But one, one of the men just started dating and oh, wow. it's, and Lynn had been his bride for 53 years. 
Wow. And it was incredible. So that may also be something that comes into your study where the, because we don't talk about grief. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, awesome, man. Well, okay. So here's the questions I wanted to kind of, Okay. kind of really dive into being that it's we'll have a kind of an end of life theme talk um cool. at some point um because we're this has been a blast today we're we're at 125 now um what? so we'll we'll have to save uh and we'll do an end of life themed po- uh podcast um because i love your work man and i want to help you get get your name out there the best that i can Thank you, keep brother. up what you're doing i'm excited to geez i'm embarrassed i haven't seen this horse story video i'm so intrigued now and i think my mother who is an elementary art teacher especially it just seems like such an easy way to connect with kids and so it makes total sense that you're writing a children's book well, it's it, and as I say, just it, it literally, I'd never thought about it. The whole thing downloaded into my mind during an EMDR session, which I do wow. a lot with my therapist, Barbara. And and I thought, so I Googled the blue elephant. And I thought, well, someone must have done it. It's kind of an obvious metaphor. Yeah. No one had done it. So, oh, dude, that's that's fantastic. Oh I'm God. really, and we'll put a, I'll put a link. Um, at least in the Instagram story or whatever, uh, so people can view that, um, you know, get you more exposure from that TEDx talk. But so let's now talk more about Movember men's mental health specifically. And so um, I actually just did a talk, not how to talk. I had, um, I'm president of the psychiatry club at uh, the school and it's been a blast. It's been a lot of fun. And we do a teleconference with the, this Mayo resident, um, Mayo psychiatric resident. Mayo Clinic, you know, in Rochester, Minnesota. And okay. he was bringing up some elements of men's mental health specifically that I kind of want to talk to you about and just how um, 75% of all substance abuse care is males. And, you know, I don't have the exact, wow. I don't have the exact figures, but also long story short, more men end up committing suicide or okay. when they attempt, they're more lethal. Um, and you know, it's just, I think it's just a really important thing. And, and part of Movember, why I'm, you know, I wish you had a mustache right now. That's the one complaint I have about this. Episode. I know why you're right. Got but, it. uh, the goatee, the goatee or the beard, I can't really tell what you're going for right now, but it looks nice. Very good. But next year, cause this will have to be a reoccurring thing. Absolutely. Um, so how, first off, first question then, I guess, how do you think men's mental health differs from women's mental health? Well, I think just given the general ability for women to express their feelings more openly and more consistently than men do. And because I don't know if you met, have read anything by Matt Haig. No, you, you would please do great. Matt, guy. How do I spell Matt that? Matt. And then last name is H A I G. The book that I read is reasons to stay alive. Okay. He has a journey like you and I. And one of the things he talks about is depression creates a thought that thought inspires an emotion and that emotion triggers an action. So if we look at men in the ability to share the thoughts and then primarily the feelings, they are more likely to be led to the action where I think that women in the ability to share thoughts rather freely, freely and also tend to share their feelings more consistently and authentically than we men do, they're more likely to avoid that deadly action. So I think the fact that men don't communicate at the feeling level enough makes us far more likely to, to be, to be successful, forgive the use of the word, 
in taking our own life in comparison with women. And I think also that men by the numbers will just because of the lack of, of communication and sharing are gonna to suffer to a greater extent than women will. Not to diminish the suffering of individual women, but I think by and by we men will suffer because we internalize all this, this nightmarish effed up hellness that mental illness creates for us. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's a strange paradigm to me because I think everyone has mental health challenges in their own right. You know, Absolutely. we all we all have elements of anxiety. We all have elements of depression. And the the strange thing is, it's not like men are incapable of building connections with one another. Well, you know, you and I. yeah, and and you know, I, in many ways, I feel like men a lot of the time are just able to form friendships maybe quicker and maybe easier sometimes than, than females. I don't know if that's always true. That's personally just been my experience. But even that being said, while we can develop essentially a brotherhood amongst men very easily, uh, we don't always feel comfortable opening up about these kind of experiences. And Absolutely. then it, it, I think it leads end up to people I know I did it um, when I was having a lot of anxiety, especially the insomnia. I was boozing, boozing to kind of put me to sleep to shut the the thoughts up, kind of thing. Right. And so, right. why do you think? Um, well, first off, did you turn to any substances to really manage any of your mental illness at the beginning? No, oh, no. Okay. I, I tended to be, especially during the time of the sanctuary, I used compulsivity around work. You know, oh, okay. you got a hundred animals. I mean, you're going to be busy all the time. So it was easy, easy to take the, the attention off of me. But I, I have not had that particular challenge to in the reliance of, of substances. Okay. But to me, here's my theory, is that those of us who have these challenges, I think we are far more to, and I'm going to take gender out of it for a second. We are far more tuned into how we feel than the average person, than the normal person. And in those acute phases, where the feelings were super intense, if we didn't have some form, absent therapy and anything else, if we didn't have some form of compensating compulsivity, I don't know if we could manage life at all. Now, I'm not condoning addiction mm -hmm. to whatever it is, but I think the phenomenon of co-occurring disorder, and I don't like the term, but they use it, comorbidity, yeah. it actually provides, I think, more of an understanding when we realize what's the function of the compulsivity as a means for a soul to stay alive, because absent that, and if they don't get treatment, they're left with these the acute feelings, which are just hell on earth. I don't think, I think our suicide rate would even be higher. Yeah, and I worked at an addiction center um, in Connecticut, and one thing I would always, t I only worked with men because um, it it, we had it split up. And that's really when I started to learn, because at least at that facility, it was like 90% men. It was just wild. It's just, it, it was so apparent that this is a bigger issue amongst uh, a male community. But right. I used to tell these guys, I'm giving up on treat on beating your addiction. And I don't know if you, some people, of course, had a mental illness, some didn't, but like, I it's all about getting addicted to healthy things right exactly and you know it's obviously if that that because you can be someone who exercises but you know to an insane degree and right. that that addiction is obviously too severe there obviously has to be balances to everything 
But like I look at things in my life, I absolutely love skiing. I love golfing. I love cars. I absolutely love cars. And, you know, these things make me happy. And I think that just helps me kind of manage my mental illness. So I would tell all these people with substances, like what aspects, what things in your life do you love that you can get obsessed with in that same respect to just like get away from that, that negative compulsion? No, I got it. Just make it a positive compulsion. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, to go back to the question, I just think societally, and I don't know about other cultures in the world, um, except for the fact that a lot of indigenous populations tend to be far more connected, which I think yeah. assuages a lot of these, or if anything, avoids some of the maladies that we experience. But, you know, I think I, from what I've read, and again, you're the expert on this, is that our, we are mentally, spiritually, physically, we're not geared to live the pace of life that we live. It's just too much. Yeah. And so I think absent some form, and my mother used to preach this slogan all the time, moderation is the key. David, moderation yeah. is the key. If we don't have that and, and we live in more isolated frame in a more isolated framework, which is the ideal fertile soil for mental illness, I, I just think our whole way of life is creates the great likelihood that men in particular are going to suffer from mental illness that and it's primarily i think because of isolation and that and then stigma puts this terrible cap on it so because you can't reach your hand up and say hey i need help because you're going to be your your friends who are ignorant are going to say you're a wuss pull yourself up by your bootstraps get the hell out of bed you're weak-minded blah 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 which is a bunch of bullshit and so the guy said, you know, if he volunteers any of that information, even a little bit once and has a negative occurrence, she's not going to talk about it again. And yeah. then that thing's just going to be like this horrific mold, which is, or a cancer, which is just going to consume them. And then those are the souls that all of a sudden they end their life and people are like, oh my God, I had yeah. no idea. And well, and I also though, as a man, I, I do think the culture kind of is, is changing and I, I think, of course, it has happened where someone does open up about their depression or whatever it may be and gets a negative experience from a man like, uh, you know, just toughen up. It's, it's just your bootstraps. Right. But in this day and age, I've also had a lot of extremely positive experiences opening up to other men about what's going on. And they say, well, you know, that happened to me, too. Um, and so I think a lot of people just appreciate that the world is changing. And I think that's really one of the best mental health men's specifically mental health tip out there it's like you know i know there has been of course this culture of uh men are supposed to be tough men are supposed to uh you know stoic in a sense just you'll get over it ignore it whatever but and of course that still exists but it is changing it is sort of improving no and in fact so two things i wrote an article an essay if you want i'll send it to you called when the great chef anthony bourdain uh, took his own life and it's called Anthony Bourdain, His Parts Unknown. And mm. it talks about this whole thing about masculinity. And so I, I'll send it to you. Um, but I, I too, I am a thousand percent in agree with you that things are changing. And so when people ask me, what do you do? And I say, I've danced with the issue of depression for most all of my life. But thanks to the support of a great many people, I've navigated from mental illness to mental wellness. And I know go out and speak and write. I have never, ever had a person that looked at me in anything but a compassionate 
wonderful way. And 99.9% of the time, they say one of two things. The vast majority is they say, oh my God, I've dealt with that or my brother or my wife or my son or whatever, or thank you so much for talking about it. So yeah. I agree with you hundred percent. I mean, I think people are so hungry for authenticity and that is, you are the poster child for that, that I think that there is a groundswell of this now, which hopefully opens the door for our brothers who are suffering in silence. And if we can just, I think, and I'm, I tend to be Pollyanna, but I think if we can give people just a small little space to begin to unburden their soul, that in and of itself will make a huge difference. Yeah. So I gave um, a talk or a tip, excuse me, at the beginning of uh, the previous episode. And, um, you know, I kind of touched on it even in this episode of my tip for men was yoga. And I guess I'll have what? to think of it. Uh, I'll have to think of a new tip for for this episode at the, to give you an intro. I don't know. Maybe I'll just start it off from the beginning. Um, good, and then we kind of talked about how like, uh, you know, even opening up to men, we of course have this connotation that it is going to be not the best experience, but I bet I'll put money on that. It actually won't be that bad. So what well, is so far as to say, I think it'll be good. Yeah. Yeah. So what would be, we're at a buck 40 now here. What would be one real tip that you could give a man suffering with mental health challenges? What would be your I one, one tip? It's the same tip I give to everybody is become an expert at creating connection because the great thing about creating connection, it lies in its reciprocity that it's like a boomerang is I create it with other people. It comes back to benefit me. And I think there are three simple ways. So when I'm in a, a in a bad place, I know I've got to go out and create connection. So I've become great at names and it is amazing oh, wow. what the impact is when you remember a person's name, I, you will, it, it, it's I'll get to a quick story. So I was at the gym and I'd met a guy named Dennis several months ago and I was working out not that long ago. And I see him walking towards me and I say, Hey Dennis, how's it going? Logan, he took three steps past, turned around and came back to me and said, did you just call me by my name? And I said, I did. And he said, you're really good at that. And I said, you know what? It's really important for me to connect with people. It just, it's really vital. And so then we talked a little bit. Next day, he, he was at the gym and he comes up to me and he said, uh, David? I'm like, yeah, that's right. Well, he proceeded to tell me his whole story. He used to be this badass mechanical engineer, like one of the foremost in the world, was written mm -hmm. up in trade publications, got hooked on booze, lost everything, was literally homeless. A guy walks by, recognizes him from the trade magazine, offers him to come home, Make a long story short, in the next 10 years, he completely transforms his life. God, give, give me his name. Let's get him on the podcast, David. Point, point being, not. I think it was the simple act of remembering this person's name that creates this space. It's like this vortex, nature abhors a vacuum. We have a little taste of connection. We are wired to have more. And it becomes mutually beneficial. Questions also are, I think, an amazing way to create the space for somebody to tell their story. And when you're in that sacred place, you become connected. And then the handwritten note thing. So the advice to men, become great at names, ask people questions, which creates a space for them to tell their stories and let the people know those in your life, how you feel and do yeah. it in the form of a handwritten note. And it can change people's lives. And you get to be the benefactor just as much as that. Because when we call forth another person by name, 
we have the bliss of recognition. When we use curiosity and resist the temptation to judge, we are on the mutual ground of understanding. And when we express ourselves, we have the same sentiment. So if you do those things, your life will be transformed, I promise you. Well, I think those are really great tips to kind of conclude this episode. Really kind of the biggest takeaway kind of I have from those those tips right there. I'm super good at remembering people's faces. And sometimes I'll even be like, yeah, you know, I met you way back at the thing at this place. And but man, I am awful at names. And I, I, I think you just kind of telling that story is inspiring me to make a better effort to try to memorize names. Um, and then it's also making me think like, hmm, I wonder if with this little handy cell phone bad boy ever in the future, you could like look at someone and it would look up in your cell phone. Uh, oh yeah, you know who that person is. His name is blah, blah, blah. Easier way well, to make connection, but also it seems like a black mirror thing that I saw on Netflix, you know, like that little like Google ga- uh, glass thing or something like a contact. I don't know. Well, and here I'll just, I'm a, I know we're ending up in quick thing. So I'll go to a place. If I know I'm coming back again, when yeah. I get out of that place, I'll go in the notes section of my phone and write those names down. And That's then when funny. I go back to that place, you know what? Am I cheating? Who the fuck cares? But like, it's a, it's a good way I'm to make connection. Like, I mean, even at the gym these days, everybody has their uh, headphones on, you know, and nobody yeah. talks anymore. But I remember there was one time I was out in the grocery store and this guy from the gym who I've never talked to in my life, man, was up in front of me and I look at him and he looks at me and we recognize each other. And I was like, what up, man? West Valley Fitness. He's like, what's up, dude? He's like, you eating healthy? I was like, no. <laughs> no. And, 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 and just from then, we kind of had been, been friends since then. And just like trying to like make that effort to put yourself out there to exactly. even like uh, me, I'm going to try to work on names, but I am God awful at it. And uh, I, I'm kind of worried considering the profession I go into that uh, I need to remember names, but at least I'll always have someone's chart in front of me. I could double check their name, you know. But you know what? And all kidding aside, so when you go out somewhere and someone's narrowing a name tag, mm-hmm. use their name. And then so yeah. you're a doctor and you're looking at the chart, call them by their name. Because I hear stories all the time in which they're with a doctor and the person does They have this name right there and they don't use it. You know, that's funny. That's funny. We're even talking about this because actually we part of my curriculum is um, we have interactions with standardized patients and, uh, you know, the greatest um, with our medically, you know, our physical exam, what kind of questions we asked. But then they also grade us on a humanism aspect. And one point is uh, one aspect of that rubric is using their name like four times in a 15 minute encounter. It feels sometimes rather stupid, but you know, when we do talk about like how a human connection is different if you actually use a name, and I guess why it feels stupid is because I'm with a standardized patient and actor who's per- this name that I'm using, I know is not their name. Right. And it changes every week, yet I see the same people kind of thing. So I think in that respect, it feels so fake. But right. then I always have to keep thinking like, no, next year I'll be a med student and those will not be actors anymore. Those will be people. And like and really I'll, make an effort to connect. And I'll give you a little, a little a, a cool way to... So here when, if I say, uh, I will do it right now. I say, Logan, I, here's what I do. I always spell it, even if it's obvious. So t- how do you spell your name? You're going to say L-O-G-A-N. And yep. then I say, how did you get your name? 
I actually don't know. I think my parents just thought it was kind of a cool name. And funny enough, uh, Logan is actually one of the more popular names of babies now. So it's coming up. But okay. when I was growing up, I was the only Logan. And I think my parents kind of liked that idea. And it, so do you like your name? Love it. Be real. Okay. Yeah. I'm the so, only, only, like, people don't need to know my last name because I'm a, the only Logan my age. The only Logan my okay. And I also like, uh, I'm going to be able to introduce myself as Dr. No One. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I'm going to play that joke literally probably thousands of times, if it's not millions thing. of times throughout my career. So that process right there, I use it all the time. So meet somebody, spell your name. And pronounce it if it's something unusual. And then tell yeah. me, how did you come by your name? 99% of the time, there is a specific story. And the other thing is, it creates a space for somebody to begin to talk about themselves. And we all like to talk about themselves. And yeah. at the same time, if I didn't know you, it'd be so easy to remember your name now because mm -hmm. your parents picked it because they liked it. I like it. I don't have people don't know my last name. So those are all associations that when I see you next time, it's going to be a piece of cake to remember Logan. Yeah. Well, man, I think that is a fantastic way to kind of end end today's I podcast. That was a buck uh, 45. So, David, Woo! you know, let's uh, we're going to have to do this again because this was this was a fantastic episode. I do an episode every single week. That's really kind of my goal of this podcast is I, of course, want to make great episodes and i think this is a fantastic episode but i also want to focus on consistency and just you know like i'm i know i'm building an audience and doing doing my best to build an audience but if they're going to be there to tune into my episodes i need to produce something and so right. it's it's challenging at time being a med student uh and doing this <laughs> but it's uh i'm glad i know i'm gonna be able to call on you and be like david i need an episode let's do this let's, let's make it happen because this was a blast we're gonna do another podcast on um end of life i think that's gonna be cool so That'll i'll link your tedx uh talk um i guess keep a lookout for david's uh uh children's book and other books so what would be the best way for the listeners to follow you? So I think if you go to my website, davidwoodsbartley.com, my amazing niece, Brooke Brown, there's um, uh, the social media icons. So Facebook is the one that we're probably most active on. We're really good about posting on a regular basis. But I think Brookie also does Instagram pretty consistently. Yeah, you need to get an Instagram like uh I know every, probably a lot of people know him, like Gary V, you know? Oh, Gary Vandertech. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and, and what I – and I want to be doing this, but I don't have the time, is doing those, like, like almost a one-minute uh, blurb of your one of your talks, like maybe your TEDx talks. And right. at the bottom, you got to remember most people, when they do Instagram, at least me, probably 90% of the time I'm looking at Instagram, I'm on a toilet. You know, right. so that you can't always listen to it. So you need <laughs> subtitles. So that no, that would no, be my my well. one tip. I've only done it a few times because it takes a little while to produce. But so okay, davidswoodbartley.com. I'll put right. that in. Um, you know, the Instagram post with this. Make sure people can find you. Um, this has been an absolute blast, man. Oh man, I I, I love and adore you, man. I'm just so great to connect. And anytime you need a, a podcast, just let me know. I've got lots of more animal stories to tell. And uh, I don't know if I told any animal stories this time, but I no, will. No, we'll uh, with a little teaser for the listeners. Are you doing anything for this long weekend here? 
I am not, but I am. I have two talks coming up next uh, week, which are pretty exciting. And in fact, the horse story, the story about Ori, Odie is the whole centerpiece of those two talks. And are you traveling now outside of just Northern California? Right now it's been Northern Cal. My hope is with the TEDx talk that that's going to push me out across the country. Well, so. I think it will, man. Uh, I think you're a fantastic speaker and hell yeah, man. You have a good long weekend. Right on, brother. Well, it's just so great to connect with you. Congratulations on your on your marriage. And again, I love and adore you, man. You're the best. Yeah, man. Have a good one. All right, buddy. You too. And that concludes this episode. Be sure to tune in next week for another Movember-themed Talk Mental Health with Logan Noon. If you guys like the show, please share it with your friends, comment, and subscribe. To show you how easy it is to file a claim with Geico, we hired a nature show host. In the native habitat of a suburban driveway, the poor victim of a broken windshield is left assessing his vehicle utterly helpless. Well, not true. If he's got Geico, he can file a claim online, over the phone, or with his handy mobile app. But like a lone gazelle, he'll suddenly be left to fend for himself, awaiting his terrible fate. Nope. Geico will assign him a designated claims team to help him out, too. So the gazelle gets his car fixed and everything. Wow. Nature is so cool. Geico. Great service, without all the drama. Now through February 16th, join a clean and spacious Planet Fitness for zero enrollment and only $10 a month. With tons of equipment and free fitness training, it's the perfect place for everybody to work out. Even me, Mr. I can't sleep at night, so I keep dozing off during the day. Especially you, Snoozy. You'll rest easier and feel fit-tacular. Wait, how did you get in here? Join in club or at planetfitness.com. Zero enrollment, $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Hurry, deal ends February 16th. See club for details.